All right, I've got a couple more minutes with Jenny Kleeman, and we're going to touch on death. Of course, we, we ended with a fetal bovine serum, and we're going to start this with death. But this was, uh, this was a really interesting chapter for a couple of different reasons. And the one thing it did do, I'm going to start off with a fun story, is you talk about Soylent Green, the movie, which I've been meaning to watch. In some ways, I was, I was annoyed with myself for reading on because you mentioned it and I still read on knowing full well there was going to be a spoiler. And there's nothing I hate in the world more than spoilers, except maybe bovine, fetal bovine serum. That might be my <laughs> new thing. But but spoilers are definitely an easy number two. And But the, this part you spoil, it, so I'm, everyone listening, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about Soylent Green for a quick second. But th- that was a really great movie um, in a lot of ways. That's dated. But that scene where Saul goes into this chamber and essentially is it has a, a death that he plans and I guess he drinks a, a substance and does it or whatever. That was a really interesting um, way to kind of describe what's going on in this industry. Did you see the movie first? I mean, it's a sci-fi movie. I don't know if you're you see the movie first or after? No, I saw the movie because, uh, you know, Philip Nitschke, who I was interviewing, kept referring to it. So I thought, all right, I'll, I'll buy it and watch it. And I remember I watched it on a plane. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's a really, yeah, it's ahead of its time in many ways and poses some really, really interesting questions. And yeah, as a kind of image of the perfect death. Um, it was quite interesting. Well, and I think, you know, the, the premise of the movie is an overpopulated New York. And I think... You know, not to not to put myself into the doghouse too much, but I think the more we save premature babies, the closer we come to 40 million people <laughs> in New York. So <laughs> I just want to put that out there. But so you you talked to this. I think this was one of the first, if I'm correct, this was one of the first topics that you explored before writing the book. Yeah. And this company called Exit International, which we're going to talk about the death part of this. I don't think we're going to have time to get into the. The criminal enterprise that it became, (laughs) because (laughs) to me that is actually a really interesting story. But tell me a little bit about what this company at least purports to do. They wouldn't call themselves a company; they would say they were a non-profit organization. But uh, yes, they are with with a four with a ten thousand percent markup, right? (laughs) Well, they they have a high markup on the goods that they they provide to their paying members. So, in countries where the right to die isn't legal. Lots of people still want control over their death. And um, particularly in countries like mine, where people don't have guns, exit is not a big deal in America, actually. Uh, it's not so much of a big deal in America, but it is a big deal in countries where people want the right to die and, and, and don't have it. So for a fee, the man who runs Exit International will teach you how to kill yourself in the most effective and painless way. And the idea is it's allowing you the right to be able to decide when you're going to die, where you're going to die, and you don't need a doctor's approval. It's your life and you should be in charge of of taking it away. So I was first drawn to them because I really believe in the right to die. And I was, I'm always interested in the spaces where the laws are out of step with the way that we live. And uh, this group steps into the vacuum of, of that space between what people want and what the law allows. Uh, this group is is um, able to sidestep lots of laws by not actually giving you the tools you need to take your own life, but telling you where you can get them from and which ones are most effective. Um, and for me, it was, I mean, death is obviously a good place to end a book anyway, but it, it exemplified what I was trying to say in the book more than anything, which is we are going to these ridiculous lengths to try and solve things with technology that we could solve by 
changing the way we live by legalizing the right to die. Um, we already know how to give people a, a painless death at a time of their choosing. We just need to frame laws in such a way that that people can have access to it and that vulnerable people won't be exploited. We need the political will to make that happen. Otherwise, you'll get guys like like this doctor and his organization filling filling the vacuum. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. It's a weird societal conversation because, you know, you and I live in two different countries that are very different. You mentioned the guns here in the United States. And it's not even so much the guns that everyone has access to, but we, especially in the United States, have a very almost puritanical belief system. Mm. I mean, all of our laws are based – I mean, despite the fact we say there's a separation of church and state, well, uh, the church itself may be separate, but their ideals definitely are not, especially the, yeah. the, the more extreme the political parties become. And that leads you to these this idea that all life is sacred all the time. And while I believe that m- most of the time, I think all life is sacred. I don't kill spiders and flies. It's a, a nuisance to my friends around me. I'm very Buddhist in that way. But I think if people are suffering and they want to end things, they should be allowed to and not carry it on endlessly. But, uh, you know, that's another uh, theme of the book is how difficult it is sometimes to change these societal um, beliefs, because it's not just the government saying these things, but it's individual people who have these beliefs as well. That's a tricky roadblock to overcome. It is. And it's funny that you say that about, uh, you know, American culture that I'll give you an exclusive here that the American publishers of my book uh, wanted to take the word death off the cover. It, it, my book is called Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat Adventures at the Frontier of Birth, Food, Sex and Death. And they said they wanted to take death off because it's a very different culture in America and they didn't want to scare readers away. And I said, you're okay with sex robots, but you're not okay with death. And they said, okay, fair enough. We'll keep death on there. But they said the, the same thing. It's quite a puritanical culture and that it, it might frighten readers away. Um, I think uh, these are difficult issues to solve. And we, we uh, even countries where uh, the right to die is enshrined in law, it's still imperfect. You know, you still get um, play, times when people who perhaps might have change their mind, they, they still end their own lives. But I do think that this is the one thing in 200 years time when people look back on how we live now that they'll think that we really were backwards, that we allow people to really, really suffer at the end of their lives and be really afraid at the end of their lives when we know how to, how to give them peace when they want it. Yeah, I'm going to give you this this lengthy quizzical look. I think my brows have never been more furrowed. And that's because I, I, I can't believe that the American publishers would want sex <laughs> robots and not death because anyone who's listening who's not in the States will uh, – here's a little insight into how our minds work. You can watch a primetime television show and watch 14 people get murdered and an hour-long episode of a police drama – but the main character, if he dares to have sex with the woman, you will not see a nipple. You will not. You'll barely <laughs> see skin. I mean, th- that is actually shocking to me. Uh, that may be the most surprising thing I've heard in this entire podcast is that they want. Well, there you go. There's, there's your exclusive. No, I mean, when I brought it up, they said, "Oh yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough." But I think they were, yeah, they were worried. I think it's more about marketing a book and and that people might not think death is very fun, whereas people would think sex was fun. But yes. It, it, it didn't make sense to me, and I'm glad it doesn't make sense to you, no. too. <laughs> well, it doesn't make sense to me for different reasons, I think, but it doesn't make sense, period, for either one of us, which I think is even the stranger <laughs> thing. So I'm going to tell you a quick story, and then I want to lead into the, the, the last topic, which is the Sarko, a little teaser there. So I just, uh, just recently, I was recording an episode of my other podcast, uh, which, is about, which is about pop culture technology. 
Uh, and and so we were t- discussing something, and one of my um, experts on the show, he was all of a sudden he just had like a blank look on his face while we were recording, and you know he was he he was finishing up. We were just finishing the episode, and he finishes up, and so we we were afterwards. I'm like, hey, what happened? He's like, oh, I looked pretty professional, didn't I? And I was like, no, you looked white. You 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 absolutely did not look professional. What happened? And he said, well, an emergency thing popped up on my screen saying that there was a nitrogen leak leak in one of the stairwells. And so I was like, oh, well, why is that a, why is that a campus-wide? This is on a weekend, by the way. It's on a Sunday. I'm like, why is that such a big deal? And then I thought to myself, oh, well, I'm guessing that nitrogen must displace oxygen in a stairwell. So there's probably less oxygen, not a big deal. So there's an engineer on the show. And he was like, well, actually, it's extremely deadly. And he said it very calmly. And he's like, because you breathe in the oxygen. And because it's not carbon dioxide, our body is designed to, when we breathe in carbon dioxide, to gasp for air. And then it's painful. Uh, if you have nitrogen, you'll just breathe it in. And you'll asphyxiate, but not realize it, and then you'll exactly. die. And I was like, "Oh, yeah. that that does require a campus-wide alert." Yeah, that, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> but but that is how, and we, we, you talk about it in this book, and that was my introduction. You know, a week before this this book was read, did that strike you as odd as as a strange way of being the perfect way to kill yourself? Um, yes, it did strike me as odd because it still requires you um, to to put yourself in some kind of chamber where that's the only thing that you're breeding is the nitrogen so it's still not the perfect way to kill yourself and I don't want to get into too much detail about how how these these homemade methods of doing it I think we all have this fantasy that you you go to sleep you know that you lie down somewhere and go to sleep and I think or that you can drink something or take a pill or something that will make you go to sleep and that that's the perfect way to kill yourself I think Breathing in and then passing out still requires you to have, you know, to be in some kind of airtight space, which which isn't necessarily ideal. But yeah, I mean, it's the idea of suffocating without being out of breath um, is quite quite a mind blowing thing, isn't it? Yeah, uh, it was very strange. And then, you know, you learn that, you know, the, the ultimate the ultimate tool for this is, you know, the guy from the from Exit uh, created a 3D printable coffin you know it's actually chamber slash coffin depending on whether you're alive or dead yeah. i guess it changes immediately yeah. upon death into a coffin uh, but it's designed to have do exactly that to put nitrogen in and you breathe it in and you just drift off and that's the end of it uh it was funny because there's a lot of things that you kind of bring up that they don't really have answers to and what struck yes. me is this is in a long li- he's really the last in a long line of people you interviewed who really seemed, you know, we, we mentioned the, the men thing earlier, uh, you know, it, it seemed more like these were all guys, the, the main, I guess the main storyline to me was they were all egomaniacs, megalomaniacal egomaniacs who just wanted to be famous and then create something and they're like, ah, the bugs will work themselves out, right? And this was, he was really the last in a long line of them that you interviewed and I realized on the frontiers of technology, these are the mad scientists. These, this is Victor Frankenstein, right? I mean, these we don't call them mad, but they kind of are. Did you get that feeling too? Yes, I did. And 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 there's you know there is genius in madness sometimes. I'm not sure necessarily with with the people that I met in the course of of, of writing the book, but certainly uh, with with this doctor who has invented the sarco, the, the the coffin that will kill you. Um, he had tried lots of different ways of being famous. You know, he had wanted a stand-up comedy career, which I found incredibly bizarre, given that you know his his, his notoriety came from the fact that he helped his ha- has helped a lot of people to die, and he was turning that into comedy. And I, I saw some of his comedy in 
it was not good it was not good and so he was kind of trying whatever whatever he could and um and yeah i mean all of these people i was trying to work out what motivated them and they want validation they want respect they want respect from their from their peers and um they want to be the next Steve Jobs or the next Elon Musk or somebody who's put on a pedestal for having invented the great thing that that changed humanity. Um, they want to be remembered. And in the pursuit of validation, they don't think about the unintended consequences of, of what they're producing. Yeah. And I think that that is a great way to sum it up, because that really, in some ways, it explains everything and everyone in the book. I mean, it's people who want validation. I would say, in some ways, fame. Uh, they definitely want to be famous for whatever it is. I mean, like you said, he's kind of whatever. What uh, you know, if I can be this, if I can't be a comedian, then I'll tell people die. And oh, I'm getting pressed for that. Perfect. Great. 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 That's all I care about. Um, it's the it's it's the wrong pursuit, right? I mean, if you were interviewing people who were pursuing this technology to better mankind for its own sake, this would yeah. have all seemed a lot more safe and I would have trusted it more. But the more I read the experts you spoke with who are, are on the cutting edge, I was actually more fearful of what the future will bring. Uh, but that may just be my dystopian leanings. I don't know. But it's also to do with, uh, you know, you have to, you have to have a certain kind of bravado if you're looking for uh, private investment. And I think when things are funded yeah. with public money, yeah. Then, then perhaps they attract different people because the salaries aren't so so high and you might not be famous, but you can be motivated with just the desire to advance humanity. So I think there's part of that as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're all motivated by validation and, and, and you know, some people don't want to be famous, but, you know, I wanted to be a rock star. What can I say? You know, we all have those elements to us to different extents it's just a question of how dangerous it can be to be motivated by that when you're you're tinkering with such intrinsic things as birth food sex and death yeah i mean that's exactly right i don't want to add to that because that's exactly right and i think a great way to end it um so i really appreciate you taking this extra time out for me today not at all it was such a pleasure thank you for having me